Okay, welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan O'Neill, and today we have an amazing guest with, the, with us today. This is Dr. Robert Biter. He is an obstetri- obstetrician and gynecologist coming from San Diego, California. <laughs> um, we're going to learn about his story and what he's doing in Thailand and specifically in Phuket. So without further ado, let's get this started. <laughs> Okay, uh, Robert, thanks a lot for joining us today. It's much appreciated for your time. Um, as we talked about downstairs and, and the concept of Fruiting Body Podcast, and I always forget to say this, subscribe, like, smash. If you're not subscribed, I don't know why, but you should be, so let's go. Um, as we were talking before, um, what was your whole reason of coming to Phuket and, and even getting into what you're doing uh, specifically on the natural home birth of uh, newborns. Sure, sure. Well, actually, uh, four years ago, I left the United States. I had a typical practice where I delivered lots of babies and performed lots of surgeries for women. Um, And at some point, I just wanted more. And so um, I closed my practice. I sold almost everything I owned. Uh, My family thought I was crazy. And, uh, and I left the United States to travel the world. And I decided that I wanted to uh, make a difference in how babies are born, to care for women and families who otherwise are not receiving the best medical care around the world. And uh, I also wanted the chance to, uh, to check off some bucket lists and to really see the world because I had been working my whole life, first in school and then uh, in my own practice, never leaving the hospital. And, uh, and I wanted to uh, see elephants and, and monkeys and, and travel the world. So uh, I started my journeys in Mexico, and I traveled across Mexico. I then was offered a position in Australia to teach. Um, I then worked uh, across Australia. I then went to Indonesia and Bali. Um, then I went to the Solomon Islands. I returned to Australia, and at which point uh, a group of people wanted me to come to Thailand. So just before the pandemic, uh, I took the last plane out of Australia and landed in Thailand uh, with the intention to build a, a free standing birthing center here in and Thailand. So throughout your, your, your travels, again, I, I completely understand, especially in someone in your position, I mean, med- school alone, medical school alone has got to be 10 years plus your practice. I mean, right. you've probably been, what, the past 20 years, you know, working 12, 14 hour days. Uh, I wish it was only 12 to 14 hour days. <laughs> no, I was on call every day, 24 hours a day. Uh, I made a commitment to deliver the babies whose parents trust me with their care. Um, because I support natural birth, um, because I see birth differently, mm-hmm. uh, women who choose me as their provider, as their doctor, um, they expect me to be there. So other doctors who are more traditional, if you will, um, it would be fine if they went on vacation, but it wasn't fine for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it was really 24 hours a day. I mean, I, there, there were t- days when I didn't see my house for two or three days at a time. Um, and, uh, and I'm grateful for that experience. I, I, I'm thankful and grateful for all the babies I delivered for all the families I supported for um, 
for the amazing lessons that you learn when you interact with people during the most intimate moments of their lives. And this was happening at like private government hospitals or was this with your own business that it you was set my, up? It was my own business. So I had my own private practice. I had a scholarship to, uh, to be able to go to medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was grateful for that. And then um, I worked for a few years um, with an underserved population. Uh, I learned Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, worked with some midwives, and, um, and then I decided to start my own practice. So it was my own practice that I owned, uh, Seaside Women's Health. And, um, and so it was interesting because I was able to sort of mold the private practice into the type of medical care that I wanted to prepare and to give. How did you make that transition though? I mean, so now you're opening up your own practice, but I'm going to assume you were in the system initially. Right. Right. And how did you make the decision to leave the decision, the system and why did you make that decision? Yeah. Well, there's two parts to it, right? The first part was, um, I wanted to, to make a difference in medical care. I knew that there were aspects of birth and there were aspects of medical treatment for women that were not being addressed appropriately. And as an employee, uh, you don't get to make those calls. So starting my own practice independently um, initially was still in within the system. I still worked at the hospital. I still followed the rules. Um, but in my private practice, I was able to set a tone to respect all women, all sizes, all colors, all sexualities, um, all, all uh, immigrant status. Um, and to really model for those families um, a way to accept birth as an incredibly powerful transformative event. And, and um, how does that differentiate from like, let's say government hospitals or, or private hospitals? And you also said that they're not being treated in, in the way that they should be. What do you mean by that as well? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, Medicine has lost its way, particularly in obstetrics. Um, There is such an emphasis on money um, that we just rush women through birth. And we force cesareans, we force operative deliveries, we force epidurals. We try to take over the birth process, not as a thank you for women, but as a way to control them and as a way to make more money. So my private practice, my C-section rate was uh, 13%. In a hospital, the C-section rate in general in the United States is 35% right now. And that's because you make more money, it's faster, and you get to be home for dinner. Whereas when when you allow a woman to go through the natural process where her body is changing where, where the baby is working his or her way down through the birth canal to, to enter this world. There's something magical that happens, but that magic takes time. And so if you uh, shortchange the woman and that baby of that experience, you're taking something from them that they'll never get back. You know, we, uh, I liken it to butterflies. You know, I don't know if you ever heard, but butterflies that are trying to make their way out of their cocoon, they have to break out of that cocoon. Their wings have to dry. 
They have to be able to stretch their wings or they never fly. So if you're seemingly kind-hearted and you cut open that cocoon, that butterfly will never be able to fly its whole life. And I think the same happens for women. The same happens for babies. How we start our journey on this planet matters. We, we learned very early that this world is safe and that we are here to make a difference and that we are powerful or we're not. Mm-hmm. And you may not remember it, but I assure you, it's deep within you. In your subconscious, let's say. Absolutely or. in your subconscious. Mm. You know, when I'm having a bad day, I'm five, I'm six, I'm on the playground, I'm picked last to play kickball because I was smart dork, but I wasn't that athletic. So I'm now a little bit older than five. But my, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions go back to that time in my life. And I believe that subconsciously they go back even further. I've seen a difference when babies are born naturally and when moms reach down and pull that baby to her chest and the baby is silent and just peaceful and looking at mom and, and looking at dad and taking in the world and feeling nurtured and loved and safe. When did this all change, though? You were saying that in government hospitals, 30, 35% of births are by C-sections. And at your practice, it was 13%, which, again, I'm, I'm going to assume that there is a certain time in which it is necessary. Absolutely. Now, when did that change in American hospitals, let's say, to that 35%, like, let's say if we go back to the 1950s or 1900s, what was the percentage yet then? When, what was that milestone changing point? Right, right. The big, the big milestone happened uh, close to the 1970s. Um, and, and there was beginning to be this awareness that I think two things happened, right? One thing happened as society in general, not just in America, not just in the United States, but around the world. Beginning the 70s into the 80s, we started to believe that technology was omnipotent. We believed that technology could save us from anything. And so we stopped trusting nature. We stopped paying attention to what's in front of us. We started trusting computers over people. And so we started to believe that and that interventions just because we could do them that we should because it was bringing technology into the world and therefore it should make our life better what's interesting is during that time period c-section rates have increased as they've increased the morbidity and mortality for women and for babies meaning babies and women who die during childbirth or who have uh, severe injury or illness um, have increased. So the United States, for example, is the lowest of all industrialized countries with regards to outcomes for moms and babies. And we are fifth in the world for the most number of cesareans. So as we started using so much technology, we stopped paying attention to the woman in front of us. Right? The number one role in medicine, whether you're using supplements, whether you're using uh, 
um, alternative products, whether using traditional medicine, the number one rule is always look at your patient. You know, in medical school, what they would do is um, they would put a, an x-ray up on the wall and they would say, okay, uh, you know, I need somebody to read the x-ray for us. And so all the med students were like, all like thinking, oh, I'm going to be so smart. I'm going to impress the professor. And they would like look at it and say like, well, the heart is mildly enlarged. And you can see that there's some deviation in the aorta. And there's some cloudiness in the right aspect of the lungs. And I think there might be a clavicle injury. And then the professor would say, it's not your patient. You didn't even read the name card on the, on the x-ray. This is someone else's patient. You just failed. You fail to recognize your own patient. And so, and yet we've learned to do that in the United States and around the world. We rely upon external monitoring where we hook monitors up to a mom to listen to the baby, to try to reassure us that somehow we're keeping that baby safer. And the truth is, it's called electronic fetal monitoring. The truth is, it's never been shown to be necessary and in fact it has not increased outcomes for moms or babies when does this in terms of technology of, of I mean, obviously some technology has uh, added value in, in in these births do you use any technology on your side that it is that is necessary of course i mean so that so we have technology that's that's useful when we need it right so i in in uh in out-of-hospital births and birthing center births, we still listen to the baby, but we examine the baby in the mother's womb, right? We listen with the Doppler. So I'm holding the Doppler. I know I'm hearing the baby. I'm not picking up mom's heart tones. I'm not, I'm not confused by what's on a screen. I'm actually physically examining the baby using essentially a stethoscope. And, and that's an integral part of, of care for moms and babies during labor. But hooking mom up to a machine, leaving the room, having one nurse having to care for three or four women in labor in different rooms, that's not caring for a woman. And so we've given up caring for women for technology. And or maybe relying too heavily on it for the answers as well. Of course, yeah. And you're, so you're talking about, uh, um, let, let's go back to, to our point about the C-sections and we uh -huh. were discussing downstairs. Um, sure. Why is it so important for women to give birth naturally and, and avoid the C-section? And some stuff that I was reading about before is how this can lead to PTSD by going through this process of having a C-section. Can you explain that more on like the scientific side? Sure, sure. Uh, first of all, people think that a C-section is just a quick and easy procedure. And in fact, it's a large abdominal surgery. A large incision is made in, in the woman's abdomen. And that incision is carried down through her skin, through her subcutaneous fat, through her, uh, through her muscle, through her fascia, through her peritoneum, and finally to the uterus. And then the uterus is cut open after the bladder is pushed away. So that's a hugely invasive surgery. And while that's happening, a woman is strapped down on a table with her arms strapped outside of her 
waiting to hear her baby cry with a sheet in front of her. So imagine just the trauma of that alone. You're paralyzed with the spinal anesthesia and that's the anticipation as well. Right. Because of things can go wrong, especially on a major surgery. Right. Right. So um, the World Health Organization says that there is a benefit of having a cesarean delivery. That benefit is at 15%. Any rate above 15%, any benefit from the cesarean delivery is outrate, is outweighed by the risk to mom and baby. You know, uh, women bleed to death. Uh, the placenta in future pregnancies can be stuck to the scar in the uterus. Uh, babies get sliced by the scalpel when, they're, when, when the uterus is being cut open. Mm. Um, so um, th there are major uh, risks that are associated with that. So that alone, um, and then you're sent home, right? In two or three days, you're sent home. You have a huge scar across your abdomen, and you're expected to care for your baby. You're expected to be able to care for this newborn, lift, lift the baby up, keep the baby clean, feed the baby. So um, we underestimate that healing process. You know, the problem with traditional approach to obstetrics is that we don't see it as an important process. We don't see it as a woman becoming a mother and a family entering a new part of their life. We see it as getting the baby out. When did this ideology change? Because I'm going to assume it probably wasn't just the 1970s as we increased C-sections. But um, if we were to go back a couple generations, this was probably part of our culture back then. When did we lose touch with that? Well, it was in the early 1900s, really, when we started to lose touch. And, and part of it is, um, and forgive me, my profession, uh, but we... Um, we started seeing midwives taking care of pregnant women. And we started to think, hey, we should be doing that. We're surgeons. So my profession really started as a surgeon, not as a traditional uh, normal vaginal delivery uh, assistant. Um, so that began the transition and then a subtlety happened where hospitals started to grow. So hospitals started expanding across the United States, across Canada, and hospitals were seen as sacred, life-saving places. And in reality, they're buildings, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what's interesting is that our first president of the United States, our very first president to not be born to be born in a hospital was actually Jimmy Carter in the night and who was our president in the 1980s. And which year was he born? Probably Ooh. early twenties, even before that. Yeah. He's in his nineties now. Yeah. 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 But, um, but John F. Kennedy was born at home. You know, like there was a famous quote of his mom who said, you know, you don't go to a hospital unless you're sick. I'm not sick. I'm having a baby. Why would I go to a hospital to have a baby? That doesn't make sense. But subtly, we were able to change that perspective. And we were able to make women believe, and their families believe, 
that they were somehow safer in a hospital. And I thought that, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, early in my <clears throat> career, <laughs> I, um, I was taking care of a nurse who worked at the hospital and um, she, her water had broken, but she wasn't really in labor and she really wanted a natural birth. And I said, okay, well, let's just hang out for a little bit. There was no need for antibiotics or anything like that. So um, just hang out in the office. Once you go for a little walk, I, I, in San Diego, I was right by the beach. Why don't you go for a little walk on the beach and then we'll see how you do in a few hours. And uh, she went into the bathroom and labor just started. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, we got to get to the hospital. So I put her in the front seat of my car, my new BMW. I speed to get to the hospital I'm putting my hands like in front of her in case the baby comes out. I'm running stoplights. I'm speeding. I put her, her baby, unborn baby, and myself at great risk because I had to get to the hospital. We get to the hospital. I park in front of the door. I get her out of my car into a wheelchair. As soon as we get through the doors, her baby comes out. And I was like, oh, thank God. In reality, it would have been safer for me to just deliver the baby in my office. At this point, you haven't transitioned to this practice yet. Exactly. I was still so indoctrinated. Mm. And I think um, even though we're talking about these issues and I feel very strongly about them and, uh, and what I'm building around the world and what we're doing here in Thailand and in Phuket, um, I think if you really want to make change one you have to build something new instead of fighting something old and also you need to find compassion you know i think about my colleagues who have never seen a natural birth that was me not long ago right mm-hmm. they they work the same hours i did but for them when they get called to come into the hospital at three o'clock in the morning, all they're thinking about is that this is a disaster waiting to happen. At any minute, something horrible could go wrong. They never had the opportunity to have a quiet, peaceful, beautiful birth. And I think you, when you're, and again, I think it, well, it's fair to say to the audience that like, I don't have kids. I, I'm, I'm probably not even the right person to be doing this podcast, but um, I thought it was quite interesting because the way that this podcast is moving in, in terms of focusing on um, people that are experts in their field and specifically more into new ways of um, taking on the world, whether it's a, a a holistic doctor. We had a vegan chef on. Um, we've had an integrative cancer um, uh, research doctor on as well. And it's just bringing information to people that they're not aware of, which is what you've done. Um, on your side, what was the turning point for you when you decided, okay, this is not working in, in terms of this uh, typical way of giving birth in the hospital and I want to transition towards natural birth. Was there a specific time you can remember that was a milestone for yourself? I think it was a gradual process. You know, I think that 
when we wake into a new perspective, um, it rarely happens suddenly. There, there are seeds that are planted. Um, I was watching my colleagues at the hospital where I worked, and they were um, miserable. Um, many were very disrespectful to women. I was shocked at the things they would say to women about women. Specifically, what do you mean by that? Uh, that uh, questioning why she got pregnant, questioning her own uh, lifestyle choices, uh, telling her that, that uh, she was never meant to have kids, that her body just was too small to have babies, that she's, she's lucky that he was there to be able to do a cesarean because she and the baby would die. Mm. You know, attacking the very essence of who a woman is, right? At, at the very least, I, I know you don't have kids, and I don't have kids either that I know of. Yeah. But, uh, but the, at the basis of who we are as human beings, we are meant to reproduce ourselves. That's really our only job. Like, we're animals, right? Animals are meant to reproduce. That's it. So at the very basic aspect of who we are, when a doctor who we revere, right? We think doctors, for the most part, have all the answers. We trust them in times of tragedy. We, we, we believe them. When they tell you that your body just doesn't work, that your sexual organs, your, the, your very very physical aspect of who you are as a woman is faulty. That's damaging. Does this happen all over the country? Absolutely. It happens all over the world. Mm. It happens in Thailand, right? Women are, the, are, are, the, are the doctors trained to, to tell them that or is that more their own opinions? I believe that they're trained. Because of the fear in childbirth, right? So I guess my perspective started to change even before I went to medical school. My father died when I was a kid. Um, he was young. He died of colon cancer at age 40, diagnosed at 37. Uh, you're not supposed to get that until you're 50, and it's supposed to be curable. So... Um, I had, I had no misbeliefs about doctors. I didn't believe that doctors were gods. They couldn't save my dad. So they weren't perfect. Interestingly enough, I then went to medical school at Penn State University, which was the big university hospital where we took my father for that cure that was never found. So the very doctors who couldn't save his life were my professors, and I had to sit in their lecture halls. How did that make you feel when you're kind of going through uh, that, that educational process? I mean, you're you're in the the classroom every day, and it must a part of in the back of your mind, I would say, yeah, it's always there. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I underestimated how impactful that would be to me. You know, the hospital and the and the um, medical school are connected, so I would. I would be, and then as I moved into my clinical years, 
I would see families who looked like mine. Mm-hmm. I would see a, a, a young guy with his, with his dad holding his dad up because his dad couldn't sit by himself. And I remember doing those exact same things. And so I think the seeds for respecting birth and death started very early for me. When did you make that decision in medical school to take on this, you know, field of expertise? Um, I had planned to do end of life care. I really wanted to, I wanted to teach people to live every moment of their life. Right. And, and how we, how we treat death actually is um, around the world is that we ignore it. We're afraid of it. We, we don't give ourselves as loved ones or those who are dying and the opportunities that we should, right? What, I mean, we're all going to die and yet we're afraid of it. But if you know that you're dying and you have a chance to do something that you've always wanted to do, or you get to tell that person that you love them, or you get to tell that person that you hate them, (laughs) right? Like we should be given those opportunities during the end of our life and during the beginning of our life. What about, what what about yourself though? Do, do you fear death? um, I don't No, I don't, I don't. Is this something that you've always felt or from your, from getting involved in in this field of expertise, it kind of uh, made you become, you know, uh, more aware of it? Yeah. I mean, my, my father's death, we surrounded him in his bed. We were all there. Um, and um, I realized that that doesn't happen for most people. So when I entered medical school, I decided to, um, to focus on end-of-life care. There's a specialty called palliative medicine. But I also learned that there are um, politics in medicine and that if you want to make a difference, you need to be in the high end of the pecking order. So for doctors, that's being a surgeon. So if you're a surgeon, people listen to you. If you're a family doctor, people don't always listen to you in the political world of medicine. So, um, so for me, I decided I wanted to do gynecology oncology, which is a specialty for women with cancer. It's a subspecialty under obstetrics and gynecology. And it's the only specialty where you do the diagnosis, the surgery, chemotherapy, and end-of-life care for women who are dying, who don't survive their gynecology cancers. So I knew that gynecology can, or a gynecology oncologist surgeons were, were the people that were really respected. When something was going wrong in the OR, when there was a lot of bleeding or it was a very difficult surgery they would call that surgeon in and say, we need help. And so in that position, I could say, you know, that I, I could be the surgeon, but then I could also say uh, my patient dying in, in room uh, 310 uh, would like a beer. Can you go get her a beer? And she'd get one. But if I was a family doctor, I would be laughed at if I was told that. So so that was my, that was my route. And it was... Uh, sort of 
tutored by the young boy whose father died. Um, the experiences of being in that hospital where my family suffered three years for a cure that never happens, watching other families lose loved ones, being around death. Um, but I had to do OBGYN specialty first. And then I helped deliver my first baby. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. And this is when you kind of discovered this is this is the path you want to go down. Now. Yeah, like I was like, mm-hmm. I wasn't some sad, morose kid. Yeah. But I thought that you learned from pain. Mm-hmm. You learned from suffering. Right? And then when I realized, wait, you can learn from joy? Mm. Like, there can be something really powerful and something that's miraculous Mm -hmm. and happy. I'm going to do that. I want to do that. So, um, So there's still a part of me that always reveres death. Um, I'm never afraid to stay in the room Mm -hmm. when a patient is dying. I'm never afraid to touch a dying person. I'm never afraid to ask them if there's something that they want to do before they die. And is this practice is still something that you're you're invested in and, and you're still a part of? Yeah, so so ideally, um, so you know, I'm building birthing centers yep. around the world. But ideally, our our my ultimate goal is to build a place where people are born and die in the same building. Mm-hmm. So a birthing center, so the, our new name of our, uh, our birthing centers is Dando Alus, which is the, germ, which is the um, Spanish phrase for birth, which literally means to bring the light. And I didn't even, I spoke Spanish. I worked in Mexico. I spoke Spanish in San Diego for 15 years. And I had never heard that phrase. Even the Mexican-Americans would use the phrase parto, which is labor, mm-hmm. or colicos, contractions, dolores, pain. But they never said, I'm bringing the light. And so a bulb clicked for me when I heard that. Like imagine if women felt not that they were working because parto parto is actually a, a masculine verb mm-hmm. so so we told women oh no 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 you're not bringing the light you're actually working you're working like a man to get that baby out but what if women believed that they were bringing the light how differently would they view the process of birth how differently would they view their bodies And in a similar way, what if we believed not that we were going to a dark place when we die, but that we were just going to the light? Regardless of your religious constructs or beliefs, in every religious aspect, looking at death, every single one involves light. Mm -hmm. Right? And yet as a society... When someone dies, how do we know that they die, right? Going to the light. Right. Mm. But, but what we've done socially is we've taken that from us as well, right? When people are waiting outside a, a politician's house, when Ava Perone was dying, 
They knew that she died because they turned off the light and they closed the curtain. What if they opened the curtain and turned on the light? And so that connection between birth and death, that we're all just coming or going from the light, if we could make that connection as a society around the world, how differently would we live our lives? And does this um, ideology, this way of, let's say, coming or going to the light, does this exist? Have you done your research on like uh, ancient tribes or, or uh, even if you were to look into um, natives in America and how yeah. they perceive that as well? Yeah, it exists in every indigenous culture around the world. Every single one. And what's interesting, as we, as we seemingly evolve, we're going back to indigenous beliefs. We're going back to plant medicine. We're going back to the use of mushrooms. We're going back to the idea that nature provides for us and that there is a spiritual aspect of our being that we should not ignore. You know, I have an iPhone. I love it. I love my iPad. I'm on it a lot. But technology is not our savior. We are our own saviors. Our nature, our bodies, our intuition has what we need for us to have a beautiful life. So um, what's interesting to me is that we're now returning to what indigenous peoples knew all the time. The also sad part about it is that society and all of the cultures have always tried to hurt the indigenous people. We're trying to push down this because uh, you cannot patent nature. So the pharmaceutical companies will come in and if there's no way to make a buck, I mean, then it doesn't make sense. Exactly. Well, and, and as society, what's powerful about the native people's is that they were the first to bring life on the planet. Mm -hmm. And they were able to live off of the planet without any accoutrements, without any technology, without excessive banking, without politics and greed. Mm -hmm. And so when outsiders see that, they're like, oh, we need to control them because they're more powerful than they know. And if they realize their power, we will never be able to take over this land. It's happened in the United States with Native Americans. It happened in Canada. Mm -hmm. It happens in Mexico with the Mayans. It happens in, in Australia with the Aboriginals. It's happened in every single country I've visited. And so that tells you that birth, that bringing that bringing life, that relying upon nature, that trusting intuition and what is in front of you is powerful. Otherwise, we wouldn't want to control it. And, and speaking of, of that side and relying on nature and, and connecting, let's say, psilocybin to end of life, um, have you seen this as you've traveled around the world? Have, have you been involved in the end of life side or just the birth side? Um, and if not, what, what are your thoughts of psilocybin coming into end-of-life experiences? Because this is trending now, and uh, um, it is becoming 
decriminalized in Canada and places in the U.S. And Perfect. I think these therapeutic uh, centers are starting to pop up. Um, can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so again, it, it, uh, so two parts. So the one part is um, I haven't expanded into end of life care during during my travels. Um, I'm. Um, it's sort of the next evolution of who I am. Uh, those who know me well know that aspect of me. Um, for the people who have invited me to give talks or speeches or or to work, um, they don't quite know my uh, my passion for end of life care in the same way. Uh, they know me as the baby catcher, so that's been sort of the focus. Although, um, as we begin to develop these centers, having birth and death together, um, we'll we'll continue that conversation. And with regards to, um, you know, a, a more holistic approach to end-of-life care and to the dying patients, um, I have seen it. I've seen it in Mexico, uh, across the United States, and not as present in Australia quite yet. Um, but I think um, we can do better than simply hooking somebody up to morphine and cranking up the morphine until either they die because they stop breathing or until we don't we no longer have to see them suffering. There is a there is a more humane natural process to help ease the transition. Um, and I think as we evolve um, and as you said as it was, as we start seeing the use of uh, plant medicine and medicinals enter into end-of-life care, um, we will, um, there will be more palliative medicine and less simply um, rushing death. Yeah, and this is, I predict eventually Thailand could be uh, an excellent destination for end-of-life care as well, especially with Canada, cannabis becoming decriminalized or uh, kratom becoming decriminalized. And now I foresee psilocybin. I, I've heard some inside information of this becoming decriminalized as well. Yeah, yeah. So by having um, uh, facilities set up for both entering life and end-of-life, that definitely could connect. And what better place to do it than Thailand as well? Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. When you first um, decided to take on your travels, w was the main goal to travel or did you also decide I will travel and get involved in natural births at the same time? Um, it's going to sound corny, but it's okay. I, I made a commitment to myself to just follow the light. And so wherever it was that I was meant to be, I would go. Um, I had some uh, general ideas of, of what I wanted to do, but um, none of them worked out the way I've planned yet. How did you make that decision to go to Mexico first? If you're saying follow the light, what, what kind of uh, uh, pushed you in that direction? So um, I, decided, I decided to leave the United States. I didn't have a plan. And uh, I was at the gym and uh, this guy was like, dude, I was just in like Tulum, Mexico. And like, it's so you, Dr. Bider, you should go there. This is San Diego accent. That's San Diego accent. <laughs> there yeah. we go. Uh, and then uh, maybe two days later, 
uh, a friend of mine came back from Tulum. He went there on a vacation with his girlfriend. And he was like, Rob, you need to go to Tulum. And then, uh, like, three days after that, another woman um, at Starbucks in San Diego um, said, um, have you ever been to Tulum? And I'm like, looks like I'm going to Tulum. So I, I didn't even know where Tulum, Mexico was. I had never, the only place in Mexico I had been was Tijuana. And Tulum is, uh, it's by the Mayan Riviera? This yes, is, yeah. yeah, Tulum is the center of the Mayan Riviera. Yeah, this is where the, the major, um, it, it's the, uh, is it the Aztec or the Mayan? No, sorry, Mayan. the Mayan, the Mayan uh, yeah. pyramids are there. Yep. Hence yeah. the name. But um, this this area, can you kind of describe Tulum? What is it? Uh, What's going on there? Sure, sure. Tulum is the most uh, powerful energetic spot I've experienced. Um, it's the last place where the Mayan civilization existed before it was ended. By the Spanish. By the Spanish. Yep. Um, it's the only uh, Mayan civilization that existed on the water. Um, and there is a, there is, it's filled with cenotes, which are underwater caves of crystal clear water that are all connected. And I swear when you enter the cenote, you feel the energy. Um, it's Caribbean, but it's also Mexican. Uh, very culturally diverse, a lot of free thinkers and yoga enthusiasts and uh, natural minded healers are there. Um, and it's a place to evolve and it will make you evolve. Would you compare it to anywhere else in the world that you've been? Like, have you been to Copenhagen, to Pi? Uh, I've been to Copenhagen. It's Copenhagen times 10. In terms of just sheer size in terms of size and in terms of uh population visiting for that purpose okay Copenhagen for me was more of a uh a destination right people go there to live because they want that lifestyle Tulum is more of a, a vacation spot people come and go very few people actually move to Tulum and stay there um there's a lot of transients uh, visitors maybe similar to Phuket as well yeah people yeah do, a lot of people do come and go here it's kind of a bit of a hub yes yeah yeah um so yeah so then in Tulum I uh, worked with the midwives the pateras and uh taught them some things and they taught me some things and uh supported births and and really that's when I started to really become interested in indigenous cultures you know, the Mayans still live there, but they're really um, sort of pushed aside. All of the hotels and the beautiful fancy places down on the ocean where the celebrities go, where Justin Bieber goes, <laughs> um, that's Mayan land. And the Mayans now live in encampments out of the way. So... Um, that began the process for me. And I was in Mexico for uh, almost two years. And then at that point um, was when uh, I got invited to come to Australia to give some lectures around Australia. Um, how, how did that connect together? You 
you've met uh, someone through your network in Mexico and they've given you this invitation to come to Australia and just, it was purely for lectures or did you have any plans to, to stay there for a while as well? Yeah, so it actually came out through social media. So uh, somebody in, um, in Australia knew me. I'm sort of well-known in the natural birth world. And so they said, hey, we're, we're giving these lectures. You should have Dr. Bider come and, spe and speak. So there was a few conferences. So my initial plan was to go to Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne to talk at large conferences about natural birth. While I was there... I met a lot of people that said, we want birthing centers in Australia. So there is no birthing center set up in Australia yet. There's no licensure. Still pathway. today. Still today. Mm. And what, what, what is the reason for that? The government is kind of pushing it back and you're not able to get licenses or certifications to open? Right. There's no pathway to licensure. So, um, so I worked with the group so that we could discover a pathway to licensure in Australia. And so uh, in the middle of that, um, I, I realized how I had always wanted to go to the Solomon Islands uh, to work at a hospital. I promised them I would be there for like 10 years and I could never go. And so I was like, uh, while we were working on the pathway to licensure, I decided to take a break, go to the Solomon Islands. And I was there um, and I was the only doctor in the entire hospital. So I had to reach back into medical school take care of men and women and kids and, and babies and everything that came through the door in addition to helping catch about 351 babies. And how long were you there for? Uh, five weeks. Okay. So it was uh, extremely busy, beautiful, amazing. Uh, it was the place where John Kennedy was um, downed during World War II. Um and what I loved about the Solomon Islands was that the Solomon Islands were a hub for World War II. So both the Allied troops as well as the, the troops supporting the Nazi regime entered that, those islands. And so Japanese kids were killed, mm -hmm. Americans were killed, Australians. And they have all these plaques in the Solomon Islands. And they take no sides. The plaques say things like um, uh, young people far from their homes died here during World War II. May they rest in peace and may this never happen again. Mm. And it was, it was beautiful for me to see that level of pure respect for human life. Across everybody involved instead everybody. of just you know, telling the story of one side. Exactly, exactly. Um, so from there, I then uh, went to work with Robin Lim. Uh, she's a famous midwife who opened a, a birthing center in Ubud, Bali. Now, you met her in the Solomon Islands? Uh, she, we knew each other from social media, okay. and she's like, Rob, you're really close. Why don't you yeah. come to Bali? And so I went to Bali and worked with her for a month. Did you go to... Ubud, where she was Ubud. as well? Uh, okay. Yeah. So I worked with her at her birthing center and uh, the sacred forest with all the monkeys. I yep. love monkeys. And all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by monkeys, which was awesome. Well, I also heard you love ducks. Oh, I love ducks too. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get some ducks. I was okay. going to buy ducks at the Phuket market because there I didn't want go. them to, be, to like <laughs> eat them, but I wasn't allowed. What, where did this passion for ducks come from? Uh, so when I was a little boy... Um, 
my sister got rabbits for Easter mm. and I hated them. I was allergic. They scratched you and I was super bummed. So my mom went and got me two ducks, ducklings. And I think she thought that I would like keep them for a little bit and then I'd be bored with them. But I had them for like six years and I named them and they followed me around. And, mm. and I just, since then I've just, I love ducks. They're so Number one, they're just so weird, right? Like, it remi- maybe it reminds you of myself, or maybe it reminds me of pregnant women who are fat and waddle. I don't know. But, like, you know, they're, they're birds that swim but can't really fly, and they have a weird beak, and they make weird noises. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also really emotional, you know, have you always had ducks as you've traveled as well? Yeah. So I used to have ducks all during my training and I would bring them into the hospital. So they were pet therapy. Mm-hmm. So for women who are dying, I would bring ducks with them, uh, for, uh, women who were had, uh, to be on bed rest for early labor. Um, my duck would come Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, in fact, one woman who was dying, um, she was a very large, 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 large woman. And uh, she came to us at the university because um, she was too large for the surgeons to be safely operating on her. So she came to us. And we had to actually, we got her into the OR, and we actually had to wait to get a larger table from the zoo in order to be able to operate on her. So while we're there, I felt bad for her. She knew what was happening and so I was just sitting there talking to her and we were talking about my ducks. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, I love ducks. It's I also helping take their mind off what's going on. As right. Well. And she's like, I love to eat ducks. I'm like, I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But as it turns out, uh, she was full of cancer and uh, she never left the hospital. So, um, so I told her, listen, um, you're going to meet my baby duck. And when you meet my baby duck, you're never going to want to eat duck again, I promise you. So I brought my baby duck in and have all these pictures for holding it. So there's a little tiny duck and this enormous woman. Um, and about less than a week goes by and she's actively dying. And I sat with her and I said, you know, her family was coming from far away. And so I said, you know, I'll sit with you until they get here. And um, in case you can't talk when they get here, is there anything you want me to tell them? Like, is there anything that you, you know, that you want special or anything important for your funeral that they don't know? And she's like, no, I think they know everything. I said, okay, well, then I'll just hang out with you. And she said, oh, wait, um, can you make sure they don't serve duck at the luncheon after my funeral? <laughs> I'm like, for sure, they won't serve duck. Um, but yes, yeah, so I've always, I've always tried to include animals, you know, mm-hmm. sort of a, as sort of that help um, in um, to alleviate fears and also just to help people have some comfort. Take your mind off it as yeah, well. And, right, and, exactly. and not focus on why you're there. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, so after I was done in Bali um, and then the Solomon Islands, um, I came back to Australia and we were prepared to open birthing centers across the country. So we developed a pathway to licensure um, I created an an alliance with a hospital system called St. John of God Hospital, one of the largest hospital systems in all of Australia. We were ready to go, and then this virus happens. Mm. 
And so all funding for anything else ceased. So um, we were reeling by that. The hospital really wanted to do it. I thought this was going to be an amazing thing to build something in a country that didn't have it. Uh, and just as I was getting bummed about that, then uh, a group in Kosamui found out I was nearby and said, hey, we want to build birthing centers in Thailand. Why don't you come to Kosamui? So I actually was in the last plane allowed to leave Australia and among the last planes to land in Thailand uh, a year and a half ago in March. And can you uh, explain a little bit more to the listeners specifically what what is different in your birth, birthing centers compared to like, you know, the ho a hospital? Essentially? Sure, sure. So what's interesting in a hospital, while we think it's technologically advanced, you're not cared for by doctors or midwives. You're cared for by nurses. Your doctors and your midwives are generally at home sleeping and they're called at the last minute. And you have a group of uh, patients cared for by the same nurse. So in a birthing center, it's one-on-one -on -one care. You have individualized care. Your midwife or your doctor are with you. You are, you are uh, watched throughout your entire labor and supported. You're not hooked up to machines. You're able to move around freely. You're able to eat and drink. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can birth in water if you want, or you can just labor in tubs. You can move around the bed. You can be on yoga mats or yoga balls. You can be in the shower. You can wear your own clothes. You don't have to wear an open-backed gown that uh, someone else wore uh, two days ago. And I'm assuming also the lighting must be completely different as well. Yeah, it's really, it's beautiful. So you can dim the lighting, play great music, have aromatherapy. You're not dealing with, uh, well, I guess hotel lighting like our spotlights here. <laughs> well, and and... And what about just color on the wall mm. and artwork? What about making it feel like a comfortable space instead of like this scary old school um, industrialized furniture, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, uh, and I think that alone makes a difference. This is your place. This is your room. This is where you're going to welcome your baby. And we're here to assist you as you need. And ultimately, we'll keep you and your baby safe. But we will not do things that are not necessary. Uh, we don't put IVs in unless you need them. You're not given medicine unless you need it. Um, you're not forced to be in a position that's more comfortable for your provider than for you. Um. So that's the main difference. And what's interesting is when you look at outcomes, outcomes are better. Mm -hmm. Less cesarean rate, less morbidity for moms and babies, uh, better outcomes, less need to cut episiotomies mm -hmm. um, or to do unnecessary procedures. Well, it seems like this would be um, the, the logical way to, to do it, especially as we move forward on, on new ways of doing things, like whether it's medicine, health. 
um, uh, or sleep, and I've gone into that in previous uh, podcasts. But what yeah. is the argument? What what is if someone is to play devil's advocate against you and say hospitals versus natural birth? What is that argument? How would that come out? Well, the argument is that people have a uh, misperception that hospitals are safer. I'm safer in a hospital. What they don't realize is what's actually happening at the hospital. So there's an operating room down the hall. But when I worked at this little hospital in Encinitas, California, the anesthesiologist wasn't even in the hospital. So I couldn't just go into the operating room and suddenly do a surgery. I'd have to call the anesthesiologist doctor from home and ask him or her to please come to the hospital so I could do surgery. So you offer, at your birthing centers, then you offer that option as well, if that is necessary. No. So at our birthing centers, we don't have an operating room. Okay. Because uh, legally, in many parts of the world, you're not allowed. If you have an operating room, you're considered a hospital. Mm. But here's the secret. If we're, at a hosp- if we're at a birthing center or at home birth, and I need an OR, I call every hospital that's nearby and I say, this is an emergency. I'm a doctor calling an emergency. I need an OR and I need an anesthesiologist. Do you have one immediately available now? No? Okay, click. Call the next hospital. And you go to the hospital that has the immediate need. If you're in a hospital, you're not allowed to do that. In the United States, it's against the law for you to take a patient out of a hospital and go to another hospital in an emergency for an OR. Mm. So you're stuck sitting there just waiting. For someone to... Yeah. That you don't have control of the situation. You have no control of the situation. And so uh, general population doesn't know that. You know, they, they think that somehow... Because you're in a hospital, you're safer. Just like I was telling the story about me thinking I had to get that woman into the hospital to deliver her baby, even if it meant that I caused a car crash on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the other argument is that um, previously birthing centers were only midwives, uh, did not involve doctors. And so there is an argument that midwives don't have the same number of births or experiences the doctors do. Um, So they may not recognize or be prepared to deal with an emergency situation. Mm -hmm. Um, That has changed. Would many doctors that like, would they try to stay away from going down the natural birth route because they don't want to jeopardize their licenses in that sense and be, you know, um, attacked by their peers as well? Um, I think that's changing. I think that's changing. Um, there is nothing that I do or that it happens in any birthing center in which I'm involved that doesn't follow standard of care guidelines. So, um, when doctors realize that they start, they start to open their eyes. Imagine in the 1980s. So before before really our time making medical decisions. But in the 80s, something happened in the United States called surgery centers. 
And surgeons were fed up with poor care in hospitals. They didn't have the equipment they wanted. Um, they didn't have the staff they wanted. Um, they were always late. Their cases got rescheduled. And so they said, you know what? We're going to build our own surgery centers. And we're going to do surgery that's safe to be done outside of a hospital. And people were like, what? You're going to have surgery not in a hospital? Fast forward to now where over 12,000 cones are able to be done in a surgery center, not in a hospital. It makes more money for surgeons who can own part of the surgery center. It's safer for uh, patients because there's no one there who's sick or with infection. There's no emergency. It's cheaper for insurance companies. And doctors and, and nurses have a better quality of life. So the same thing can happen for birth. Right. If we can convince doctors that they can do surgery in a center, ambulatory center that's not a hospital, in low-risk surgical patients, we can do the same to convince them in low-risk birthing women can give birth in an ambulatory birthing center. And what, what do you see yourself doing in, in Thailand for that? What are the next steps for you? So, uh, so we're now developing a relationship with hospital um, so that, that there is a pathway for birthing center licensure they, in Thailand. The, the hospitals, are they welcoming or are they standoffish? Because obviously I'm not in that industry, so I'm sure there is quite a bit of red tape and politics and, you know, um, going down the right paths. Right. What right. have you seen so far and where do you see yourself? Where, where do you see that actually going? Sure. Well, um, I've been through the political fights. Um, I am a little older than I was at the time. And I recognize when the path becomes hard to shift gears. So because of that, I guess I don't bring in political drama any longer. So I get a sense that a hospital is accepting and wants to move forward or not. And if they don't, we're done. Um, also, I think there's something about my energy now. There's something about these four years of travel that have changed me. I don't attract conflict any longer. I think there was a part of me that used to look for it. I wanted to make change. And if you make change, you fight and you're like hardcore and you get straight A's and you like... That's how you succeed. Whereas now, I think you succeed when you live in joy. And suddenly, doors open. And like you said, instead of fight it, just build it yourself. And right. like, what is it? The, the, the American build. build it and they will come. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> field of dreams. There it field is. Field of dreams. Kevin Costner. Uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. There yeah. you go. Yeah, and also getting back to that compassionate aspect. Those doctors that started surgery centers were called crazy. And now every hospital in the United States wants to be a co-owner of a surgery center. Partly because of outcomes, partly because of money. 
The same thing will happen with birthing centers. So luckily, I met an amazing doctor in Bangkok who was supported and interested. And he actually introduced me to his professor uh, last September. And I came to Bangkok to meet him. And um, he had wanted to build what they call in Thailand, natural birth in Thailand, they tend to call active birthing. So um, he spoke some English, mostly Thai. And, uh, and then his, you know, his students, who's the doctor I'm working with now, uh, wanted to introduce us. So here I come, this younger doctor from the United States, going to bring birthing centers to Thailand. And I met him on the day of his, um, the day that he was retiring. The day of his retirement party was the day I met him at McDonald's for coffee. Mm. So I was sort of bracing myself for I don't know what, maybe anger, maybe disappointment, maybe uh, judgment that this was something he wanted to do his entire career. His career was now ending. And this young guy from the United States thinks he can bring birthing centers to Thailand. So I sat down respectfully. I sat down and he gave me a book that he wrote about active birthing. All in Thai, so I can't read it. But in it, he wrote, thank you for coming. I have been waiting for you. Mm. And I think... That's the energy that will bring these birthing centers across Thailand. And so now we're at a point where uh, we have uh, overseeing in Thailand, we need a, a relationship with the hospital. We need an overseeing Thai doctor and we need a local Thai doctor. So uh, I'm setting those things up now so that we can begin the process to build in Phuket. So this is all, it's all being built now. And if, People are, that are listening to this and they wanted to reach reach out to you uh, and, and have a natural birth, when could they expect to see this stuff ready if you were to kind of estimate and guess? So we're starting the process now. So I think we should, I, I honestly, uh, we have some meetings, um, but I think in a few months we'll be ready. Ready. Um, it's really the process, all of the equipment, all of the knowledge we have. I'm prepared. Uh, my role will be that of a teacher. So I will be working and teaching the, the Thai uh, medical community about natural birth, about birthing centers, policies, and procedures. I'll be supporting them as they um, help women have beautiful transformative births. And I'll also be teaching the nurses um, about what natural birth is. Um, and that's... That's the most exciting aspect for me, mm -hmm. right? I've delivered over, gosh, 7,000 babies in my life. Well, I haven't delivered them. The women delivered them. I supported their delivery. Um, but I've been involved in about 7,000 births. And one day, either I'll die or I won't be able to do that work anymore. Um, or I'll want to go on safari <laughs> or a month <laughs> Right? So the idea that I'm teaching others who will carry on this mission mm -hmm. 
is so exciting to me. Uh, it's not about me. Mm-hmm. It can't be about me. Do you, do you see any major barriers that or obstacles that you, you you're positive you will face in Thailand, especially in terms of maybe their standard of care or their practices and procedures that might try to stop these birthing centers from happening happening so clearly the doctor that you met up in bangkok if he was to say to you that he's been waiting for you was he waiting for you without trying or was he waiting for you because he didn't want to challenge the system i don't think the system was ready yet i don't think the world was ready yet so um the world wasn't ready when i started And uh, it wasn't that long ago that I started. The world is evolving. Um, And I'm confident in Thailand that Thailand, with the reverence of life, with the spiritual aspect of the life in Thailand, with holding on to tradition and culture, they will see this as beautiful and it will fit culturally who they are i think as far as challenges of course the greatest challenge is going to be how do we make this available for everyone um in kosamui i met with somebody who initially wanted to do birthing centers in kosamui but only really wanted them for the money they were only going to be available for those who af- could afford to pay cash and they were not going to be involved with insurance. So the challenge will be how do we make sure that all women have this opportunity in Thailand? And do you see the, the, the clientele and, and the patients coming in being predominantly Thai or will it be uh, maybe 80% Thai, 20% uh, foreigners? I think I think initially it'll be largely foreigners. You know, there are there are many people who come to Thailand, who uh, who birth with midwives in Thailand, um, under the under the radar, um, because they don't have that opportunity where they live. Uh, that also happens in Bali. That happens in in Mexico. Uh, there's a large Russian community who will travel to deliver because they want a certain type of birth. Yeah, so I'm assuming you're talking more about Russians because I, I would I would guess as well that in the U.S. you have that opportunity if you, right. if you want to. Right. But in Russia, it's almost impossible. Exactly. You have yeah. to go to the hospital. Exactly. But here's what happens, though. There are, there are expats who are here who are, who are living who want that experience as well. Uh, what happened to me in Kosamui when we were building um, was... Uh, he had a really beautiful birth with a woman from England and she had lived in Koh Samui for a while. So she was, and she had her own, um, uh, hair salon and massage therapy and a, a little shop. So she was really well known. And the number of Thai women who saw the photos of her birth and had her talk about what her birth was like, they would come to me and say, I want that. I want that. I want, a, I, want, I want a birth like her. I want my birth to be like hers. So when Thai women realize 
that birth can be treated differently, there will be a change. And that was so exciting to me because I really, I really felt that perhaps for Thai women that they would not, the majority of them would simply follow the guidelines of the doctor, do what they're told, and not have the audacity to want more. Yeah, and I think a lot is changing, especially back to uh, the old ways in Thailand. I mean, we've had cannabis experts on here and with the legalization of that and um, understanding that this was an important part of the Thai culture in terms of food like a right. hundred years ago. Right. Other examples, um, people starting to go in and create their own sustainable farming. We've had Wade, as, as you're familiar with, Wade Latham on, and I visited his farm and, and what he's doing there. So this trend of going back to nature and understanding you know, how it was a hundred years ago, it's not that far-fetched. My question to you is, we were discussing downstairs that in Thailand and, and also in the USA, um, but let's let's focus on Thailand. When children are born, they're imme- immediately vaccinated. Now, we're not talking about the current situation, vaccinations, but more things like, you know, uh, uh, polio and, and maybe, um, you know, the measles or things like this. From the doctor's point of view and the more the scientific point of view, what are the issues with that? Right, right. Well, um First of all, it's important to understand that babies, for the first six months of their lives, they have full immunity from their mother. So even if they're not breastfeeding, if babies are breastfeeding, they continue to get mom's immunity. So if mom is protected against polio, for example, the baby will be protected against polio. Um the two most common at-birth vaccinations in Thailand are uh, tuberculosis and hepatitis B. And um, those are useful vaccinations. They don't necessarily have to happen immediately at birth. Part of our process in, in what we do for babies at birth is really because we fear that we'll lose them, right? So if, if I give a baby a vaccine or a certain medicine at birth, then I'm sure the baby gets it. Whereas if I wait six months, I may not see that baby again. So it's not a financial gain. It is, it is the fear of losing the child. I bl- well, the fear of losing the child to the system, not necessarily health-related losing. I don't mean that. But I mean you won't see that kid again. Okay, I see what you mean. So in case Lost they don't, to follow up. You're, you're, you're not going out and, and you're also reducing the, the chances of tuberculosis because you're 100% sure as we vaccinate them, that's going to stop the spread of that disease. Right, Okay. right, right. Um, I think that as human beings, we need to begin to trust our intuition more and we need to make informed decisions about what we want for our health. And that involves what medications we use. It involves what we put on our skin. It involves supplements that we take. It involves vaccines. It involves recommendations. You know, um, I never decide for a patient that they must have surgery. 
right? I say, this is the condition. These are the recommendations. Um, I would recommend this, but it's their choice. The same with cancer. If you have cancer and you choose not to have chemotherapy or traditional treatment, that's your choice. You have that right. There's a sovereignty of our bodies that we should respect. Um, so, but that's something that needs to be relearned, right? Because we've given up our sovereignty because we trust, we don't even want to make decisions. Like my patients would say, I, I, just tell me what to do. Mm. But I, I, number one, I don't think that's ethical. Number two, it's, not, it's really not safe for a doctor to do that because we're not God. You know, we're not gods. So we could be wrong. Or you could be that one person that has a bad side effect. Or you could be that one person who really needed the surgery and didn't get it. Um, so I think we need to involve people in conversations, right? Just like if you're introducing a new line of supplements. You need to involve a conversation so that people feel confident in their own choices. Um, mm -hmm. And in childbirth and in immediate an immediate uh, care for babies, that intuition needs to grow really quickly. So for me, during prenatal care, when I have enough time, when I'm with families long enough, um, it's really important for me to help them to grow into parents, to prepare them to support a new little life mm -hmm. beginning the journey on the planet. You were saying earlier that kind of your, your mantra or your, let's call it your North Star is you're following the light, yes. which can be tied back to birth and death as well. Mm -hmm. um, as you follow that light, I'm, ass I'm assuming your diet's probably quite spot on so you can listen to your gut, listen to, you know, uh, um, and I, as we know, the gut connects to the mind, so you're making yes. more better decisions. Um, but my point is back to following the light. When you deal with people that approach you that want to have a natural birth do you accept everybody or do you have to deny families as well wow that's a hard question um because maybe they don't align with your light that's yeah. the point of the question i know, I know. <laughs> uh yes i need to respect me as a human being as well so um, when I first started uh, my career in medicine, um, I was so overwhelmed to hear my name preceded by the title doctor. To have that accomplishment and responsibility and, and to actually become a doctor was just so overwhelming to me and i believed that i should always sacrifice myself for the privilege of being a medical doctor and while i still believe it's a great privilege i no longer believe in sacrificing 
oneself. I think when we begin to sacrifice ourselves for others, we eventually will hate those to whom we've sacrificed ourselves and we will no longer be effective in whatever field of life, of occupation, whatever walk of life we live. When we respect ourselves, we teach others to respect themselves and we teach them to respect us. And in that mutual commonality is where great things happen. So in the beginning of my life as a doctor, I never said no, ever. Even when I knew it was detrimental to me. I knew I couldn't trust the patient. I knew she would lie to me. I would place myself at great risk. I've cared for women who I trusted, who abused that trust, and they had bad outcomes, and I was to blame for those outcomes. Now, if we're not in alignment, if you're really not ready to follow the light and to experience birth as a transformative, beautiful, but also self-responsibility-filled experience, then I'm not the right person for you. And our birthing centers need to live beyond me. And I cannot sacrifice the possibility of a birthing center having injury because of a bad outcome, because somebody was not the right fit. And I think back to what you said on that point would be focusing on the truth and people sharing, you know, uh, the right information with you to be able to make those uh, right suggestions. Now, when you're when you're taking on a patient, are you do you have a process in terms of questionnaire? I mean, I mean, probably best case scenario is a lie detector test, let's say. <laughs> But I mean, to, to ensure that that person is the right fit for you because, um, you know, people can kind of pass that bullshit meter in the beginning interviews, but then a couple months into it, you start to realize, wait a minute, something's not right here. Right, right. Well, I think something that uh, we call it clinical acumen in medicine, um, but in, in our normal world, it's really intuition. It's listening to your gut. And it's trusting your intuition. It's paying attention. And it's, and it's continually asking yourself if you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And that is a great gift that I've developed through birth that has made me successful as a doctor and, and I believe as a person. So... You know when you meet somebody, you're like, mm, something's, something's, strange. something's a little off. And you're trying to figure that out. And you're trying to figure it out. And you're like, ah, it's just me. Or, ah, yeah. But he's a nice guy. But she's really cute. I don't know. And then it by gets the, bigger. By the time you find out, it's too late. <laughs> right. Right? Right. So... Um, <clears throat> So I think there's, there's this intuitive process that's very important. Um, yes, we, we have a history about you know, medical history and obstetrical history. What's their background? You spend some time with them. But also you just pay attention. You get in contact with 
the person. Um, and whether it's in the first meeting or whether it's two or three months down the line, if it doesn't, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. And, and I think in life in general, right, anytime you don't listen to that, you always get in trouble. You yeah. know. You know. Yeah. You knew you shouldn't have gone out with her. You knew it. And you did. Yeah. Like, you knew you shouldn't hang out with that guy. Like, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. He's super fun. Next thing you know, you're in the back of a cop car. Yeah. It's Not that that's happened to me. I'm just saying. Don't touch the stove. You know it's hot. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Same thing, right? Like, you just... Um, but... But there's something about uh, us being afraid to be authentic, right? Whatever that authenticity is, right? Like we won't be liked or we won't have friends or we won't be successful or we'll create problems or I don't want any drama. Well, it's kind of the like the Japanese proverb, everybody has three faces. I'm sure you've heard uh, that. Right, right, right. In that right. sense, you know, you're those, you sh those you show to the world, those you show to your friends, and those you show to yourself. And it's very rare that you see the face that you show to yourself that you show to the world. It's a, it's right. a very uh, difficult barrier to break through. Well, um, with my patients especially, um, given the time... I tend to go below the surface very quickly. And so for some people, you immediately recognize that they're not comfortable. They want to stay on the surface. And so um, there's a self-selection that happens. Well, don't they need to open up so that you can connect and then be able to work together properly? Uh for me, yeah. For for the medical world in the hospital, they don't care. Yeah, that they don't care. So, um and also it's about um I want to live my life differently so that I've made a difference um on many levels. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh in my practice in its neatest I had famous musicians, I had know movie stars i had poor immigrants i had lesbian families i had gay men who were adopting a baby i had all walks of life and they all sat in the same waiting room and i would i would i could watch from the back people's comfort and i remember this one woman was really really uncomfortable with um an Oaxacan woman who was in the waiting room mm. and she was sort of avoiding her and it was kind of disrespectful and she did some things that really upset me. Now, now Oaxacan would be like native to that area, right? Oaxaca is, uh, yeah, Oaxaca is, yeah, a little bit south. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it is on the same coast as California, but it, a lot of Oaxacan immigrants came into San Diego. Okay. Um, and I called the woman back and I'm like, Hey, I made a copy of your chart. I, I, I can tell you're not comfortable here. I don't think this is the right place for you. Mm. Here's three other doctors right down the street. I think you'll feel much more comfortable with them. And the, the first time I did that, I was like scared to death. And then it was so liberating. 
right? So like whatever we do with our life, whatever your mission, whatever it is that, that you want to do with your time on this planet, you have an opportunity to model for other people and you have an opportunity to help the disenfranchised and support the underdog and and really make a bigger difference just by your daily actions and your interactions and being authentic. And so that's also how I approach my life in general. It's how I approach medicine. It's how we approach birthing centers. I abandoned big investors because of statements that they made. Um, I had an investor who, who wanted to invest enough to build 20 birthing centers across the United States and 10 across Mexico, millions of dollars. And um, the birthing centers, for what it's worth, and the investors out there, it's, uh, it makes sense. You can do well and do good. But this investor uh, actually said to me, I don't really care about birth. I'm a fascist pig at the end of the day. Just wanted to make a profit. I just want to make money. So I don't want to hear any of your stories. And Yeah, and that doesn't connect. That doesn't align. So and I was like, <laughs> how can you have a relationship? I mean, especially at that level, because once you start... Once it starts rolling, that ball is, you know, right. right. how is it going to come together? So I had to say no thank you yeah. for millions of dollars of investment. And then I went home and drank beer and cried. Yeah, but it could have been a, <laughs> it could have been a, a headache for the next 10 years. For sure. You would have been drinking sure. a lot more hard stuff than that. I uh, know. I know. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and I, think, um, I think, you know, if we, if we get back to Thailand, that is going to be one of the challenges or... I'd rather like to say opportunity for us mm-hmm. to model so that affluent uh, Farangs or foreigners or expats will be in the same birthing center as a poor Burmese woman mm-hmm. who doesn't have the same healthcare opportunities and for uh, working class Thai families. They will all have birth in the same beautiful place. They're all going to get the same level of care. They're all going to be treated with the same amount of love and respect. Mm -hmm. And if people are uncomfortable with that, then our birthing centers is not the right place for them. That's very, very well said. And I think, well, before, before we kind of wrap this up, because I guarantee we're probably on two hours. Oh, that's perfect. I'm quick on time. Oh, good. Yeah. Before we wrap it up, I would say um, if you want to talk, explain to the audience and how, like you said, you'll be ready maybe in a couple months. And yeah. how can they find you and like at least to monitor what's going on and stay up to date on when you are going to launch and be available? What's the best way that they can find you? And I think what? Talk to that camera. Talk to that one? Oh, that one. Okay, right there. Oh, wait. No, no, no. Sorry. See this camera here? Oh. There it is. It's hidden. Yeah, it's, it's hidden. hidden. Uh, uh, it's mostly like website, uh, Instagram, all that information. And we'll sure, pop that up. Sure. So my, my general website is uh, robertmbiter.com. Um, I can be found on Instagram at robertbitermd. 
and your world is bigger. Um, those are the t- those are the two largest um, and easiest ways to contact us. Um, I'm also uh, writing a book called Your World Is Bigger, um, which is uh, is currently being exported in uh, Nurture Parenting Magazine in Australia. Um, and my email is robertbiter at gmail.com. R-O-B-E-R-T, B as in boy, I, T as in Tom, E-R at gmail.com. Perfect. He crushed that one. That was probably our best uh, promo, guest promo yet. <laughs> He's done that a few times. Okay. Um, we're Again, we're trying to keep these uh, about under an hour 40. We used to do about 2.30. Um, just I, I feel with the algorithm and podcast now, everything needs to get a little shorter and quicker yeah. so people are, are on top of it. But I, I the information was amazing. Am I looking at this camera? Okay. Um, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Subscribe, smash the like. Um, once Robert opens, we let us know in the comments if you have more questions and we could even bring them back and dig a bit deeper. Okay. I never know how to end these. So we're done.